0: Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 82 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans podcast. I'm your host, Rick Verbonis, and as always, I am joined by, some might say, the best gosh darn co-host out there. Hey, Bob, and you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife, and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? <laughs> that, that's like a cultural
1: touchstone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you know, you know what that's from? That's Talking Heads, Rick. Yes, yes. What's the yeah. name of the song? What's the name uh, of the song? Burning Down
1: the House. Oh
0: know. my God! I totally, don't know. Completely. I hate that. Song. I really.
1: I never liked that band. I have to say. Oh, okay.
0: The yeah. name of the song is uh, "Once in a Lifetime."
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Once in a lifetime. So "Once in a Lifetime" uh, was on a live album that they created, and it was. Do you want? You know what that live album was called?
1: I have no idea.
0: Stop making sense.
1: Stop making sense. Yes. It does ring a bell.
0: Yes. You know why stop making sense rings a bell? It was also the title to Captain America 307, which just happened to be the very first issue Mark Mm -hmm. Grubald wrote for Captain America. I
1: have to think this is all tied together in some way.
0: I know, right? (laughs) Uh, Yes. So today... We're going to be talking with the author of Mark Grunewald and the star-spangled symbolism of a Captain America from 1985 to 1995. So we're going to be talking with Jason Olson, the writer of the book. And the book, of course, is all about Mark Grunewald's time on Captain America. So I thought, what better opening to you, Bob, Mm -hmm. than to give tribute to the very first issue mark grunwald wrote of captain america
1: nicely done nicely done and i hope we maybe we'll come have an opportunity to talk to jason about um about that very thing you know, the use of uh the talking heads uh album
0: yeah yeah grew was a, a big talking heads fan so he actually titled a few of his stories after uh some of some of talking heads uh lyrics or songs or albums um so anyway yeah that's where we are and we're going to be talking with jason here in a few moments uh but before we do bob i just want to point out um we got another five-star review on apple uh on um itunes and uh you know, we're, we're always appreciative of our listeners who leave us a five-star review. Uh, and, and also you could do that on Spotify. And we also appreciate you just uh, subscribing and, and just uh, making sure that you never miss uh, an, an episode.
1: Yeah. These reviews, it's like a deluge now. <laughs> You're right. The expression on your face was uh, was priceless. <laughs> uh,
0: because because it's missing. It's one of those stupid things. Like what happens when you're on I, iTunes and you have something open and then you go back to it. It's like mm-hmm. blank. It's happened uh, so no. many times. Yeah, that's right. I was able to to get to it. <clears throat> yes. So so Bob, this uh, this five star review on iTunes is by someone referred to as. Udlock, udlock. It's huh. U D L O C K Udlock. Let's go with udlock. udlock. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they gave us a five star review, and it the title of it says "Nice to have two cap fan friends with me to wrap cap on the way into from work," and he writes, or she writes, someone writes. Great fun and very informative for the Cap comic book hobbyist and scholar. I found both the Facebook group and podcast last year and had to play catch up on all the episodes. I have at least a 30-minute commute to work each day and after listening five days a week, I finally got all caught up in January. I now look forward to Wednesdays when each new episode drops. The episodes covering specific issues feels like Rick and Bob are reading to their kids before bedtime. Nothing better than story time with a healthy moral lesson with a what would Cap do message. Also, great insight on insider interview episodes. Bob, here's my favorite part Uh of the review. You ready? I'm ready. One suggestion, though. (laughs) Bob, come to class prepared, dude. (laughs) You're a college professor. A good example. I'm a school administrator, so I get to say things like that. Okay. Actually, it's pretty funny when you don't, because it gets Rick really riled up. (laughs) (laughs) It is true. It does. Keep up the good work, Cap fans.
1: Awesome. Love it.
0: Yep. All right. So, thank you, Udlock, for that five-star review. And if you leave a five-star review on uh, Apple iTunes. Uh, we'll be sure to mention it here on the show. So be sure to subscribe. And also one other plug, uh, make sure you check out CaptainAmericaComicBuffFans.com. That's another way that you can go on and uh, just you know, put in your email address. Every time a new podcast drops, you'll get an email and you can go right to our website and you can listen to it right on our website or of course, wherever your favorite podcast provider is. Well, Bob, I say, hey, you know what? I'm excited to get to talk to Jason. How about you?
1: You bet. I've been waiting for this opportunity. I uh, read through the book and I know he's waiting for us to let him into the room. So let's do it.
0: All right. Let's get to Jason. Pretty much all Cap fans have heard of Mark Grunewald. He surpassed Stan Lee as the longest tenured writer of Cap, writing the series from 1985 to 1995. And during that decade, he introduced such characters as John Walker, who was the super patriot, then became Cap, then became U.S. agent. Uh, The villain turned love interest Diamondback and a slew of other villains from Crossbones to Flag Smasher to Scourge of the Underworld. And he penned such stories as Steve Rogers giving up the role of Captain America to be known only as the Captain. Uh, He wrote Bloodstone Hunt, Streets of Poison, and so many more. In addition, Mark was Marvel's executive editor, working on dozens and dozens of titles, including he was the mastermind behind the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Sadly, he died at the young age of 43 as a beloved creator and editor and known as a generous, fun-loving jokester. Our next guest, Jason Olson, has written a book diving deep into Mark's impressive decade as Cap's writer. The book's titled Mark Grunwald and the Star-Spangled Symbolism of Captain America, 1985 to 1995. So we're very excited to get into the book and explore Gru's Cap legacy. So Jason, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited
0: to be here. Well, before we, we get into your book, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, like uh, how and, and why you first became a fan of Captain America.
2: Well, that takes us back a ways, doesn't it? Um, I started reading comics in about 1985 i think it was nine years old and i remember the first comics i ever got my, my mom gave me a whole handful of them to take to summer camp and my summer camp experience was completely dreadful but at least i had those comics and the i'd like to say that those were all captain america comics to really create symmetry for our conversation they were not um, they were the further adventures of indiana jones so i was still in the oh, marvel still- universe yeah but, all right. but not cap and um and and I I found Cap um, on my own a couple months later um, as I got excited about every possible Marvel comic for some reason I was I was already partisan toward Marvel I, I guess those great Indiana Jones adventures and and I found issue three oh seven um, at a newsstand probably in one of those spinny things and and it caught my eye. Um, for a couple of reasons, one of which it had the um, the promise of the dramatic uh, retelling of, of World War II or dramatic flashback to World War II, and and so I, I brought it home to my my grandfather and we read it together. Um, he was a World War II vet and and I didn't know it at the time, but that was my that was Mark Grunwald's first issue as well as my first issue of Captain America. And so over the the years that followed, my grandfather and I read a whole bunch of them together. And, and then like, like many of these stories about reading comics in the 80s and 90s, I kind of lost touch a little bit and then revisited um, comics in general and Cap and Grunewald in particular. When I started college, because there was a wonderful comic shop right across the street. And so it was such an easy way to, to lose any um, expendable income I had, even if oh, it wasn't. Lucky that man.
1: Expendable.
2: Yeah. And and that got me back in there. And so at that point I've got to the tail end of, of Mark's run. And I, I hit the the fighting chance and the, the issues that followed that. And so then I kind of filled in the blanks on that with back issues. And and then again, more time passes. And and then I I am going off to to getting different degrees and I've kind of lost a little bit of touch with the comic world. And I got married and had kids and, and, and then I stumbled back into it again um, and got into pop culture research and became very interested in the idea of kind of getting into something in a little more depth.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I got to say, I think for, for me, you know, that time period you're talking about, you know, high school and college, uh, you know, and I think, Bob agrees a little bit too, you know, um, and many of the the listeners, you know, that's kind of a sweet spot, you know, when it came to, to, to reading. And so we all have a, a love for that time period, right. Absolutely. When we first got into it. Um, so a lot of readers absolutely, you know, love, love cap, right. So, mm-hmm. and we've got thousands of, of, of fans uh, in our Captain America comic book fans, Facebook group. Um, but not everyone it, it certainly commits the time, and energy and resources uh, to to write a book on the subject. Uh, So what motivated you to write this book?
2: That's probably smart uh, on their parts to to not do that. (laughs) Um, You know, what compelled me to write is, as I said, I was doing a lot of pop culture research. Um, I was presenting at conferences and writing a little bit about some various things. And I was at a pop culture conference in Washington, D.C. in 2019. And I was at the book fair and chatting with some editors and staff from McFarland and company books. And, and we were just talking about some pop culture type things and, and, After a little while, they said that if we had if I had any ideas that I should propose them and and give them a a chance to think about it and maybe they were just trying to get rid of me right but but it it made me think like, you know, this could be fun to really delve into a pop culture topic and I -hmm. I went back to my hotel room and I I started thinking and, and then these issues from Grunewald came into my head and I thought, you know, these were such a formative thing for me. As a kid. I mean, I, I don't know if there was a writer that I read more when I was a kid than Mark. I mean, just going through all those issues of CAP and I would go back and I, I love the Hawkeye stuff. I was reading Quasar, I was just reading a ton of his stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I looked it up and I saw plenty of really cool articles writing about him and his legacy, especially on CAP. But there was nobody had done like the deep dive. And I thought, well, you know, this, this might be kind of a fun thing to do. And I, I I proposed it to the the publisher and they were on board. And um, so it it was a big project, but I I kind of plotted out the different issues I, I read through everything again. And I, I love them as much now as I did then. And, and so then I started to see things that I wouldn't have seen you know, when I was even in high school. Um, some, some really interesting um, cultural commentary and political commentary that were working through these issues. And and I came up with a list of things that I wanted to talk about, and then I just dove in, and it was a project that came together really very very quickly. Um, and I am grateful to, to my my wife and children for for allowing me to have the time to do it, um, because there were a lot of times just sitting at the kitchen table, uh, just working through different chapters and and coming up with ideas. But it was it was uh, it was absolutely um, a project built out of love for the material, and I'm I'm so grateful I got to do it.
1: Tell us a little bit about your, uh, you're an academic, right? And what your academic background is and what you're doing now.
2: I am a um, associate professor of English at Utah State University. And I have a background, a PhD in English with an emphasis on creative writing poetry um, and a secondary emphasis on different uh, 20, 21st century poetry. Um, my master's degree is also in creative writing. Um, so my background is, is mostly in creative writing. I am currently working on a creative writing textbook um, that I'm writing that should come out in 2023, as long as I hit all those deadlines that I've said I would. Um, I teach writing and literature, um, and I, my love of pop culture and comics works its way into my writing classes so often. Um, and whenever I get a chance to teach it, I try. Um, this summer, I'm gonna be teaching a graphic novel course and so I'm always excited to get to do that. So I try to, to weave those, those interests in pop culture and comics specifically into my, my teaching as much as I can. I,
0: I love hearing that because, I, you know, I, I used to weave that into my classes as a student, mm-hmm. right? Like I used to somehow find a way to, to write about comic books uh, in any of my English classes. And my, my English teachers, my English professors loved it because it was something different. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't the same old stuff they were seeing all the time. In fact, I, I know in college I did a, a paper on comparing T.S. Elliott's Wasteland to Alan Moore's Miracle Man. <laughs> and I, I got like an A plus on it, right, because, you know, it was something they'd never seen before. Yeah. But, you know, but that's brilliant that you, you know, you're able mm-hmm. to to, you know, inter uh, intermingle, you know, your two passions. Yeah,
2: it, and it's it's an amazing time to get to do this because unlike perhaps when we were in high school, um, comic characters are. are- pretty hot these days Mm -hmm. Uh, you know it was it was hard to convince people of how cool Captain America and Iron Man were back when I was in middle school Um, and now it's it's less difficult Um, so you know like I would tell my students when I was working on this book and they were like legitimately excited about that and and so it's really neat to be able to take those passions and then show them the application like show the students like hey this is what I did and and show them that it's okay to, to follow the things you love even in a setting that might not feel like it's totally compatible with it
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you said that because um, and I I did want to bring that up because I think a lot of maybe our listeners don't realize that there's this whole field of pop culture and critical analysis and that there's conventions and there's books and there's journals that address this. But let's get to the book. Um, In the introduction, you asked the question, at what point should we stop regarding a work as a mere text and start thinking of it as literature? So what's the answer here? why should we think of Captain America comics as a body of literature to be analyzed and critiqued and from which we might be able to learn something deeper?
2: I I want to talk, I'm
1: going to answer this question,
2: I promise, but but I'm going to start us (laughs) off by taking us back to my MFA thesis defense. You know, I already said, I I got a degree in creative writing, so I had to sit in a defense with my my advisor and, and other people, it's a horribly intimidating process as they, they, they ask you, just grill you question after question. And you know what, friends, I got through it. Um, it was great. I got through it. I had a great conversation. My advisor um, chairing this committee said, well, I think if no one has any other questions, we can go. And, and I was you know, halfway out of the seat, ready to just get out there and go hang out with my friends and just you know, the, get through this. And then one of the people on my committee said, well, wait, wait, I've got one more question Just just one more question. Like, okay, you know, what is this? And like like
1: Colombo, right? Just just one more
2: question. Right. It was was an English (laughs) department, Colombo. And 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 so Professor Colombo then said, So, so let's say that a a student comes into your your office to talk about poetry. And and I'll, I'll use the example that he gave in 2001 here also. And and this student really loved this poem that you assigned in class. Yeah. And the student also said that they really loved this song by Britney Spears that they just heard on the radio. How do you talk to them about how different these two things are? And I'll tell you what you do. i bombed this question. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't remember what I said. Um, I'm glad there's no recording of whatever I said, because I'm sure it was terrible. I had a foot out the door of this room as I was answering this question. Um, but it's a question that I've re-answered in my head uh, a thousand times. And And I thought of it as you asked that question, because it's kind of living with the same principle, you know, what's the difference between this sort of academically, critically praised work of literature, with this, this thing that's created for popular effect? And, and I spent a little bit of time in the book earlier drafts of this book, I had a lot more time talking about this difference between um, literature and pop culture and where they meet. And ultimately, I wonder if it matters. Um, and and I, I say that knowing there's a the distinct difference between Grunewald and T.S. Eliot. <laughs> I mean, they just inherently are going to be things. But one of the main differences would be the way we'd look at them critically. Um, and as somebody who's written a lot about T.S. Eliot also and gotten into some pretty deep analyses of the wasteland, I, I think one of the things that makes literature is its ability to bear scrutiny how deeply we can get into literature and find things out of it. And as I was going through these issues of Marx, um, they bared scrutiny. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of this. And so ultimately, I don't know if it matters what, what we look at, the Shakespearean versus Grunewaldian or anything like that, but what matters is what we can get out of it. So even if something was created for, you know, an audience, of, of some children and, and various types of audiences which we can assume that the wasteland for example was not um there is still so much that we can delve into with with mark's work that i think it it, it fits into a definition of of literature because i think it gets tricky with with comic analysis because there might be certain things we'd look at and think well you know the the Watchman, uh, Watchman, clearly is literature, mm-hmm. and and you know maybe there's certain things. Maybe you know the 1980s Star comment Heathcliff line is not what we'd look at as literature. Maybe there's not a lot of scrutiny that can be dealt into. But Mark's work kind of fits in the middle. It's clearly mm-hmm. geared toward a popular audience. But, but goodness, if there's not a lot of meat inside those issues too. So um, I think if we love something enough and if we can talk about it enough, then things can be literature. And as, as you were hitting on, Bob, the, the, the pop culture academic scene is, is, is just so popular right now because there's so many things we can do. And I sort of joke about it. The, the One of the things I do in the scholarship is take things that we love and then suck all the joy out <laughs> of them. <laughs> And, and it was hard to do with these issues for me because yeah. I, I love them so dearly that, that I hope that that gets conveyed. but yeah I, I'm going to call it literature um, that, that certainly justifies me spending this many words right. writing about it
1: right Yeah so one of the other, uh, one of the other I think foundational assertions you make in the introduction is you say that Mark Grunewald's Captain America is very much a product of its era, both artistically and politically. And you make the case that it is, quote, completely aware of the political climate, climate of the era, unquote. We'll dig into those claims a bit more as we go along. But generally speaking, what do you mean by that? Mark's a writer that is very much
2: aware of when he's writing, but it doesn't, like, plaster itself over everything that he's doing. And so what's really interesting is there are these insinuations of the outside world that are going on politically that, that motivate the characters and the actions that take place. Um, the the captain storyline, the road to the captain, the captain, all, all the stuff that you have done such a wonderful job talking about over the last few months and will continue to do, um, there's no way you can read this and not think about like the Iran-Contra stuff and think about ways in which the the, the government was maybe not being as honest as it could have been during this era. And, and so I think that Mark is, is definitely tied into these things. Um, he also does that culturally. There are all sorts of little cultural touchstones that are working their way through these issues. And, and so I think that, that Mark is very much thinking of, of these issues and, and Captain America as being part of this era. Um, there are some comics that I could go back to them and think, well, this could have been taking place at any time. You know, maybe the, the, the drawings of the hairstyles and things, maybe that looks pretty 70s or 80s, but this could be any time. Um, Mark's 10 year period had to take place between 85 and 95. Um, and that's true of the stuff at the end, too, um, because the, the sort of climate politically and certainly in the comics industry changed so much from 85 to 95 that the things that he's doing at the end of this feel like they only could have existed during that period as well. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Are you talking about Cap Wolf?
2: <laughs> I, 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 to a degree, yes, um, because, you know, I, I had a chapter, I, I will say this, Rick, but I had a chapter about Cap Wolf and about Team Cap that, that were in there that I ultimately decided to pull, oh, um, yeah. and, and I know, that's a disservice to all of us, perhaps, yeah. or perhaps it wasn't, you haven't read it, um, <laughs> and, and I think some things that are interesting <laughs> about Cap Wolf, it's I love
1: his, it. It's got his Cap, Rick's, Rick's uh, showing off his Cap Wolf t-shirt right now yeah
2: i, I would <laughs> reveal my Cap of tattoo but i'm not going to do that That's oh yeah, that would, and I, yeah and i don't have one um but <laughs> I, I think you know what Cap kind of gets at with the wolverine guest appearance is is these these popular characters that are very very different than than steve yeah,
0: yeah
2: yeah and yeah. and you know in that series you get so many guest stars there's some cool stuff in cap Wolf. there's very little doubt about that um it gets a little diluted with the guest stars as it goes on but but there's an essence what that chapter was not that you asked me about that but i'll answer it what that chapter was that i ended up um not using was taking the idea that there are a couple of storylines where cap physically is changed like into a teenager or into a wolf whatever the case may be and yet steve rogers is never gone um that even as a teenager what that means is like okay he doesn't quite have the strength and he doesn't have the super soldier serum so he's going to have to reason his way out of these situations and as cap wolf um he can't communicate and think as clearly but the steve rogers is still there Um, Mm -hmm. and i think that's such a wonderful thing that mark does is we never lose track of steve even when he's a wolf um, even as a wolf, he's still motivating all the other wolves um,
0: to, to go in there into <laughs> battle, and and I just love that. An inspiring uh, wolf, yes, yeah, yep.
2: one of the most inspiring wolves i Yeah, seen.
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. Hey, uh, there's lots
1: in this book that I, I got to tell you. There's things that I read and that I was like, "Huh, yeah." I mean, I kind of knew that maybe subconsciously, but I never really put my finger on it. And one of the things was uh, I noticed early on. Was uh, in early in the book you argue, and I'm going to quote you again here. You you said Grunwell realized something that became essential throughout his 137 issues. If Steve Rogers ever was a regular Joe, at some point in his life, that part of him likely died years earlier, and what remained of that person was ultimately completely uh, frozen, completely out of him. And then later on, you wrote, one of Grunewald's defining tropes on this title is his interest in figuring out where the symbol and the man separate and where they ultimately met. I mean, that's an insightful observation that cuts really to the heart of the characterization of who Steve Rogers is and who Captain America is. And is it the same person or isn't it? What did you mean by it? Well, thank you for, for saying that. That makes me feel good. Like <laughs> I got something across. That's awesome. Um,
2: you know, I, I, I think that there's a closer proximity between Steve Rogers and Captain America than there are with most superheroes. And, and I think that's something that's really compelling. And I think it's something that Mark figured out pretty, um, it seemed pretty quickly within the series. Um, Cap is also much more, Steve, I guess I should say, so much more aware of his status as, as a myth than a lot of other superheroes seem to be. Um, that's not to say that he's more myth than like for the audience than other superheroes are, but his own sort of self-awareness. There's that that weird story. Um, it's in the, the, the 50th anniversary issue. I think it's 383. Um, the legendary America one, the one where Cap mm-hmm. lands in some strange world and starts hanging out with John Henry and Uncle Sam and Johnny Appleseed. It's a completely bizarre story. Um, and the whole story is about whether or not you are myth or if you're a person if you're a man and and steve is unwilling to accept that he's passing that that he's ready to be just looked at as mythology at this point and that's really an interesting thing because the the idea that for the reader he's fictional and he's mythological and and he's all of that but within his own universe within that earth 616 of the marvel universe he he's a living flesh and blood, blood individual who probably gets a lot more criticism than we would have in, in our world as we look at him. And he is not willing to give up that humanity because he is so deeply tied to what it is. So I think that, but he's also aware that that he is close to myth um, be, because of the way that he is perceived and the way that he carries himself. And I think that's fascinating that how close he also seems to be he's protective of his secret identity because he's a Marvel character in the 80s and 90s and they all were basically but he seems less concerned about protecting that secret identity than some because there's almost no real gap between the two I mean it feels like they're very much the same especially as it goes on
0: you know it feels like
2: maybe at the beginning there's a little more illusion of the the difference between Steve Rogers and Captain America but as it goes on Steve is very aware um, that there's just not much space in between the two
0: would you would you say that the myth when you talk about a myth that it's similar to what uh, an icon or is that a different type of uh, explanation
2: i no, i think that, that that fits i think that makes sense i you know i i, I like using the word myth because it it sort of stands almost as an imaginary figure, as we would look at it. Um, and, and so there's something that's almost within even his own universe, he wouldn't be seen as being quite human, where these other superheroes are much more human. And we see that in execution. You know, mm-hmm. um, We see other superheroes who have a very clear distinction between their, their secret identity and their, their costumed identity. And you've got characters like Hawkeye, who are a little more casual perhaps out of the uniform than than cap so i think i would be fine with using either of those terms right or but
0: symbol I, I think symbol yeah. yeah probably uh is something that's been used quite quite often when referring to captain america
2: yeah i i use it uh, liberally within the book too and, yeah and, and because he sees himself this way you know i mean i and that's a difference between a lot of characters like Cap would probably hesitate to be seen as a symbol but Steve Rogers embraces that full on um he wants that because that's going to make his mission easier to to convey where other heroes uh, other adventurers would probably be much more reticent to do that um because he takes his role as symbol as myth so much more seriously perhaps than others do
0: yeah i agree so um you know getting back to mark gruenwald the you know he's been referred to lovingly as the, the continuity cop uh, of the marvel universe right he he had this uncanny ability to remember the most minute details um and and which quite frankly probably why he was so involved or not involved but the genesis came from you know the official handbook of the marvel universe right uh and and how he got the role as executive editor um and and we talked about the introduction of your book towards the end of it you wrote um quote while grunwald's adherence to continuity is rightfully applauded he was uninterested in continuity merely for its own sake what is most important for grunwald and what makes him potentially troubling to some readers or critics is that he's willing to disregard certain elements of the character's history so what do you mean by this and and can you maybe give some some examples
2: yeah, I, I think the most obvious examples would be things like, um, you know, Cap is very staunchly not going to drink over the course of Grunewald's run, and there are moments, I can't remember what issue it was, but there's one where he's having a beer with Sam right at the beginning of an issue. Um, the, the the very anti-gun approach that that Grunewald has for Cap over the course of this run can be very clearly contradicted by things that we would see in earlier, especially back in the, the war issues, um, because they were those were continuity issues that were really not important for Mark as far as building the character. And what mattered most was going to be the character building um, of of Steve and Kat into what he wanted them to be. This being said, the the continuity, reputation is completely valid uh it's kind of remarkable to think of just how brilliant he was in keeping everything connected i i always love to think about that that issue 307 when like editors were asking what he was going to do on it um, because often when a new writer would come in maybe not as much back then but you know they they'd maybe start with a cleaner slate um, and and Brunwald does none of that um, and if they asked him so what's your first issue going to be well you know i'm gonna gonna have cap on a plane for, for a good chunk of it, because he was in the UK in the previous issue. So so we got to get him back. We're like, oh okay, what's he gonna do on the plane? What's he gonna sit there? He's gonna take a nap. Um and and well, what's the main action of the, the story gonna be? Well, um, Nomad is going to uh, fight a new villain. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. So we're going to build Jack up and build nomad up. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be the star of this one. So what are your plans with him? Well, We're going to write him out in about six issues. He's going to (laughs) pretty much be gone Um, because that's what he, he wanted to make sure that the the continuity was maintaining itself and it wouldn't have made sense to just um, write off nomad in an issue or, or just completely dispose of Bernie. He cared about making those steps as, as we go through and his, uh, his ability to to pull characters out of the the seemingly the seeming ether is remarkable. Um, and and yet, when it came to the 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 integrity of the Cap character, he did things that maybe could be seen as contradictory to what's there before, without any explanation. Right? I mean, there's there's not a a footnote that explains why Cap was having a beer in an earlier issue under a different writer uh, because that was less important to him.
0: Right. and I and I think also along that lines of the whole drinking, was it Mark Grunewald who who retconned that his dad was an alcoholic? I I can't remember. I I think it was. Yeah. So he obviously had a strong opinion on that. Uh, But you brought up Jack, you brought up Bernie. Um, You know, these are characters in in Steve's life. Right. Um, And and so you you make the case that Grunewald made a concerted effort to kind of unwind the previous writer's efforts to, to humanize Captain America by giving Steve Rogers a private life. You know, he had an apartment, he had a girlfriend, he had neighbors, real world jobs, like he was an artist. Mm-hmm. But in contrast, you offer that Grunwald quote, slowly pulls Steve Rogers out of faking a place in the real world. So can you maybe expand on that?
2: Yeah, I, I think that... It's, it's, it's interesting to think of Steve Rogers as having a normal job and having a non-superpowered, non-adventurer girlfriend and, and circle of friends. And, and I think that as Grunewald moves through this run, that it sort of made sense for him to, to focus on the adventuring and the avengering, I guess, a little bit more specifically. And so those characters while he never writes them out completely, and Bernie maintains a presence through, through a good chunk of this run, that there was an interest in kind of seeing how else he could interact with the world. Um, so, so when I say, when I kind of imply that these other writers gave him a more human side than Mark did, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily what I mean, because I think Mark makes him human, but it's kind of what we were talking about before, that Steve Rogers is not an ordinary guy. Um, and, and, and so he still has a job, as an artist, but it is to write, or to draw, sorry, Captain America comics, which is fascinating, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the levels of meta that we start to get into are, are incredible, um, and so even his real world job relies on Captain America and his knowledge of everything to do with Captain America's physicality and movement. He he gets a love interest as it goes on, but she's another adventurer. And so so it kind of moves everything toward that direction as Mark goes on. And I don't think it sacrifices Steve's humanity. Um, I think it just kind of pivots it into a world that he's more comfortable in. And, and so that's what I meant by faking it. Not that Steve Rogers couldn't pass off as a normal human person, um, but he might not, right? You know, when when we're looking at like um, Clark Kent, we see a, a kind of a dopey guy the way that he portrays himself, and then we see Steve Rogers walking into Marvel Studios to to hand in his pencil work. Um, of course, they're going to think, "Well, like I like I, I could be Captain America. Look at that guy." Um, and and I think that's a really fascinating part of of what Mark does with this.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point because you know he, he does still personalize it but i will i will maybe offer this as as a kind of like steve was a little awkward a little dopey in that issue where he and rachel go on their first date right like he he was so old-fashioned and and out of touch as far as the last time he'd gone on a date Mm -hmm. uh so that was kind of a a a great mark grunewald-esque story Uh, yeah yeah down to To painting steve in that regard and then also some of the other things that you touched on a little bit like i know when we were covering this in an earlier episode mark's the the kind of writer that just throws thought bubbles into these secondary characters you know just to to paint an overall picture and and that that was also something that was very obvious in that particular issue
2: i and i love that about him it's like everybody matters you know when i teach creative writing one of the things that i teach in fiction is that every character kind of has to have a want a goal something that they're striving after and and mark gives it to everyone um to the point where it's almost perplexing at times like why did i just hear what the the hot dog vendor was thinking at this point right and and yet it feels like it fits into this world i i think of like faulkner um when he was writing his work um would have backstories like huge backstories for every single character that shows up whether they're a major character in a work, or if there's somebody just taking a ticket to walk into a, a, an event. Um, and I'm not saying Mark was necessarily doing that, but those thought bubbles give us that sort of credibility of this being such a living, breathing world that, that Captain America is part
1: of. Mm. One of the things that um, um, you you credit Grunwald for is um, his lack of concern or apparent lack of concern over maybe perceived as dated, um, because of the cu- cultural touchstones that he sort of sprinkles throughout the stories. Um, and that was another insightful observation that I, I hadn't quite put my finger on. But when I saw the examples that you wove together in the text, I thought, oh, my gosh, you're right. I mean, I, I do remember all those cultural <laughs> touchstones when I was I was reading these back in the 80s. Right. And so <laughs> can you can you share a few of those with the um, with the listeners and, and explain a little bit what you meant by that? absolutely i i one of the first things you can do is start googling some of
2: the titles that he comes up with and there is a lot of talking heads references um, in in a lot of the titles that he provides and so right away we're getting to see some of the the cultural touchdowns there's that issue where he and bernie go to like the farm aid type um concert yeah. festival and he's seeing all of these different musicians and there's that wonderful moment where he's like or Cap says, is that, is that Tina Turner? Or it's on, is Cap starstruck by seeing Tina Turner? This, this is that sort of awkward humanity that, that we talked about a second ago. Um, there's a lot of references like that. Later on, Free Spirit, I think, mentions her her heroes or Michael Stipe and Mother Teresa and Captain America. And, and so there, the, he was just unafraid to put stuff that he liked in these issues, and I've, I've had a chance to get to know Catherine Scholler, um, Mark's uh, wife, um, and we've talked a little bit, and she said that he was just crazy about um, the talking heads, uh, among other things, and, and it's been fun to kind of get a sense of that, because he just puts it in there, and I love that in a writer. I love when you get a sense of a writer's personality and the things that they like and the things that they care about and and mark really puts that front and center even though this is in no way autobiographical and it's not anything like that there's just so much of him that seems to be in these issues and it's kind of a delightful move Mm -hmm. and yeah it feels dated now i sometimes when i was especially when i was deep into the book um i my son would want to read them with me and he's six and and i'd have to explain things like well tina Turner was. for some reason, you didn't know who she was. I failed as a parent, clearly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's it's really interesting how how willing he is to to keep things tated, um, and I think it's to the benefit of us as we look back at them. Right? Well, it's uh, funny
0: you should say it because you know, um, a lot of times we see a a president that is in a story, but it's shaded or it's. Mm-hmm the back of the president's head or because they don't want to necessarily date that story right but ronald reagan was (laughs) clearly in mark grunwald's story right when when, uh, the viper came with the uh you know turning in uh, everybody into reptilians and and here we have steve rogers fighting a reptilian ronald reagan in the white house i mean yeah he wasn't afraid at all to, not to everybody would
2: have, yeah. Not everybody would have done that, um, and and I I think it's just such a wonderful moment. Yeah, you're right. I looking back at like Engelhardt's Secret Empire for various reasons, that president remains sh- shaded um, during during that storyline, and and so it's interesting to to kind of think about how we see Reagan drink the the tainted water that turns him into a, a, a reptile, and it's it's a wonderfully weird moment that that
1: Mark provides so so many moments like in those issues. Yeah. Let's let's touch on that a little bit more, shall we? I mean, you spend quite a bit of time in chapter two, which, which is entitled Captain Unamerican, Steve Rogers in Positive Patriotism. Mm-hmm. And you spend, spend time differentiating the Captain America of the Englehart run from the one that emerges in Grunwald's. And contextually speaking, of course, Engelhart and Grunwald are writing in and for two very different eras, the Nixon and the Reagan eras, respectively. Can you tell the listeners what some of those key differences are and how these shape the author's respective approaches, especially around how Captain uh, Captain America embodies this idea of patriotism? Sure. I
2: I think one of the major differences is that when Nixon was under his deepest amount of scrutiny, um, deep into Watergate, The public opinion against him was uh, catastrophic for his long-term success as president. Um, Everybody had turned against him. People lost complete trust in government. And in Reagan during the Iran-Contra affair, people did not trust Reagan. There's some amazing polling that I found that showed that barely anybody believed Reagan when he talked about the Iran-Contra affair. But he still had pretty large amounts of support. Um, So there was like this cynicism that was starting to come in that maybe we didn't get as much during Nixon. It was almost like the Nixon scandals um, soured the country on the sort of just default respect they would have for the office of the presidency. And by the time we get to to Reagan, it's like, yeah, he's lying, but... Everything, you know, the things seemed to be okay for some people. And so there was a, a, a less pushback on it during that time. And I think that that educates both of those stories, that the Englehart story is, it's, I, there's a really interesting letter to the editor in, in the uh, Grunwald era where somebody accused the two storylines being exactly the same. And and I the editor, was it uh, Macchio, I think? Macchio, yeah. Yeah, um, argues that point. And, and I think really splendidly saying that the difference is in the, the secret empire when, when Steve becomes nomad in that storyline, that that was him kind of rebelling against everything. He was rebelling against the, the, the government. He was rebelling against the people. He felt that they had lost faith in him. He had lost faith in them. Steve's in a terribly dark place at that point. Um, in the... In the, the Grunwald story, it's different. Um, he hasn't lost faith in the people at all, um, but he has lost faith in the government. In fact, I mean, he's so determined to make sure he serves the people. He is not comfortable with the concept of, of being tied too much into governmental red tape. And so I think that that's reflecting these different times is that, that people were cynical, but they weren't completely disenchanted because perhaps that disenchantment had already occurred in some ways.
1: And, and, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no. I was going to say, I mean, because you go on and you close that chapter by suggesting that um, ultimately uh, Cap's decision to, to stop being Captain America is is a remarkably patriotic act. And, and, and you and you go on to assert that it's probably the most patriotic act that he undertakes during the entire Grunewald's run. Is that why? Because he's still uh, in your view, he still believes in the American people. It's just he's suspicious of, of the powers that be.
2: And rightfully so. I mean, it turns out that the powers to be are under the control, at least to somewhat of the Red Skull. So, so Cap's spot on in this assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think so. I, and, you know, we've talked about how Steve Rogers and Captain America are so deeply intertwined. And so what could be more difficult for him to do than to give up that uniform and that shield? Because that's something that he's saying is identifying to him um to to the, the the mission that he has and the mentality that he possesses and so to sacrifice that is a massive massive sacrifice and and he he worries and the main thing he worries about is that well that means somebody else is going to wear it and what if they do a disservice to to this uniform and the shield um because that's how deeply entwined he is with it and so i think it is patriotic because he's willing to overcome those concerns, to give up this thing that is defining to him, um, because he knows it's for a greater good. And, and I, I think that that's a, a fascinating thing. And I think it is a deeply patriotic act. So
0: I stand by that. I like that. I'm
2: glad I wrote that.
0: We stand by it, too. Thank you. So uh, a good part of your treatment of Groomwald's run explores the contrast between Steve Rogers, Captain America, and that of John Walker. So first, tell us a, a bit about why Grunewald introduced Walker as super patriot and then gave him the Captain America mantle for a year and a half. And, and what was going on at the time, both you know, culturally, politically speaking, that you know, may have influenced Grunewald's creative impulse here?
2: I think the, the one of the first things that that Mark does is introduce these characters, these villains, especially that are ideologies, and and so one of the things he was kind of interested in is like if if Captain America is patriotic then does that mean patriotism is innately good? And and he started to push back a little bit on that. And then like, well, what if we had a darker side of patriotism? What would that look like? Well, it looked like the super patriot, right? Um, This character who feels disingenuous, who is using his patriotism as sort of a contest to, to show how much better I am than you at this. And so the super patriot debuts, I think to provide a darker aspect of patriotism to contrast with Steve's very, uplifting and positive patriotism we get this very negative view of patriotism um, I think it's also telling just the way that that the character is conceived in the way he looks um you know he's very uh, Dolph Lundgren Rocky IV right which totally fits into the timeline that's from 1985 yeah and so yeah. We're, we're right at the timeline and and so we've got this this sort of I will break you type figure <laughs> who appears to contrast with Steve who looks a lot more like maybe a, a um, uh, let's see who who would be a, a, a good a good match for for him at this moment. Robert Redford, right? Who's got kind of a, a Robert Redford vibe? Who was in movies like Out of Africa in 1985, and so so it's sort of like looking at this sort of path this aggressive figure versus this more thoughtful one. And so I think that one of the things that also inspired Mark, and he said this in an interview that I found that the fans were sort of asking him to make captain America more like Rambo. Yeah. And, and, and Steve Rogers, as he says, could never be Rambo. There's, there's no way I can do that, but I'll give you that. And so he brought in super Patriot and John Walker mm-hmm. to fill that void. So here's this Dolph Lundgren Rambo looking figure. Um, To to fill that void. And and it works as a contrast. We see how that kind of figure, this this character with a different perspective on the government, at least at the beginning, much less cynical, willing to believe anything, um, versus Steve, who who is coming at it from a much more thoughtful perspective. And and so it's really interesting to see how that darker side of patriotism kind of manifests itself when it has the uniform on too. And, And spoiler, not always great. You know, I want to give away everything that happens in the Captain storyline later.
0: I know that's our job when we go yeah, through yeah, John our eight-part series.
2: Right. Sure. John, John doesn't always make the right decisions. Yeah.
0: I got to say, I'm so glad you brought up uh, when, because, yeah, I, I've, I've read some interviews where, where Mark mentioned the Rambo character. Yeah. Um, because it was, you know, I mean, like, here we are in, in the mid-'80s, and to your point, you know, uh, Rocky... Rambo, you know, these Sylvester Stallone uh, type of macho patriotism, you know, and, 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 you know, I think that was also part of the, the reason that we've got the, the, the flag smasher with ultimatum and, and Cap taking the machine gun and, and yeah. using it, and then the whole discussion about that, and also to, to Mike Zek's cover of that issue where caps holding machine gun, looking like the Punisher,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: like the Punisher was huge back then too. Right. You know, I mean, that, he was at his height. Um, so I'm glad you brought all that up because mm-hmm. Mark Grunewald got Steve Rogers. Yes. And, and he wasn't going to bend to the whim of what the pop culture was at that time. He did his best to stay true to Steve's character and then at the same time write this amazing story showing that Steve's going to be, you know, tried and true and stay through this, even though you've got this other type of Rambo type character coming in as John Walker. So thank you for, for bringing that up.
2: Well, thank you for making those points. I also I, I think that it's really interesting also to see how his perspective on that sort of evolves. Because I think it becomes much more cynical, perhaps, as we get to some of the stuff that happens toward the end, um, and and perhaps we'll talk about that when we, if we get to conversations mm-hmm. about fighting chance and some of those things. Mm-hmm. But but I think that that the comic industry changes so much by the time we get to the the mid nineties that that it isn't enough to just make commentary about it. You have to kind of question where Cap fits in at this point. Um, the, the sales are gonna be lagging behind titles like Punisher and the X titles and all that. And so it becomes a question of Captain America's um, value in the world at those points too. I think at this stage, it's not. Um, I think at this stage, um, Steve is very convinced of what he's providing. Um, but I think that it really works to have that contrast with, with John. Walker. Yeah.
1: I don't want to quibble though, but um I do think uh the Rambo of, of Rambo 2 First Blood mm-hmm. is very different than the uh, original Rambo and oh, gosh, uh, yes. you know the original, which was very formative in my uh, my development as a young man. So it,
2: it's it's amazing how uh, Stallone made sequels in which he forgot what the original movies were.
1: Yeah, uh, he, he seemed right. to do that a couple of times. He did that a few times, right? Yeah. So but so uh, I I want to apologize uh, in advance uh, to (laughs) to the listeners, but I do think this is an important point, but it is a bit academic. Uh So you contend in Chapter 3 that Walker's approach to patriotism is a, quote, sort of aggressive response to the worldview of cosmopolitanism. And that rings true. And we often talk about this idea of a cosmopolitan view of patriotism, particularly around Steve Rogers Hmm. Um, and his view that the American dream is, I mean, it's not just a a, a nationalistic response. It belongs to everybody equally at all times and all places. But, you know, for the sake of 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 listeners who may not be familiar with this term, can you explain what you mean by cosmopolitanism? because you're not likely to hear that in everyday parlance, right? You hear it maybe in a classroom, in political uh, you know, science or political philosophy, um, but it's not something we we talk about at the water cooler. And, and then can you share a bit of your thinking about how this idea relates to your assertion that Steve Rogers embraces a somewhat cosmopolitan perspective when he prioritizes the interest of humanity over the interests of, of nations?
2: Sure. I i think that there are a few different ways to define cosmopolitanism i'll kind of keep it simple here uh for the sake of our discussion and for me (laughs) (laughs) fairness um i think that it's it's, let's let's just think of them is this the magazine (laughs) 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 yeah it's the one where they have (laughs)
0: how to keep your man how to get your man is that the right no No? okay
2: in in utah they have the nice little black little barriers in front of it so you can't oh, right. have <laughs> in the cover in the newsstands um cosmopolitanism i think one way to think about it is that it's the the people are there um the nation is there to support the people and it's not necessarily the people supporting the nation and and i think that that works as, as there's more nuance perhaps to that but i, I think that's the way i kind of want to distill it right now um where it's where a place where John and Steve really stand in contrast with each other um, because that that deep trust that John Walker has in the government to steer him in the right direction, which dissolves as, the, as his storyline goes on, but it it's kind of built on the idea that the country is here and um, for the, the people to do right for it. That, that it's the country that matters. It's that's, that's the entity that we're all here to contribute. That we're here to benefit this thing. Um, where the cosmopolitan perspective is that, well, people are what are most important. And so there's really less value to to the, the, the state as there are to the people that are within the state. And and I think that's closer to what Steve thinks. But Steve is not anti-nationalism. You know, we get that through the whole Flag Smasher storyline, um, that Flag Smasher is there to talk about how the world would be so much better without any borders at all. And Steve's not there for that, because he sees value in, in nations' Representing people, but he's certainly not there to see that the 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 nation is the end all for it. Even his nation, even the one that he wears very proudly in every part of the uniform, um even that
1: is only as important as the individuals that it serves. I think that clears it up. Thank you very much. Okay. You know, uh, but yeah, it's a complicated concept. I, but it we is. do bring it about it. We do we do talk about it quite a bit. So I think Absolutely. I think thank you for for clarifying that.
2: Rick, are you still with
1: us?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: What? I just okay. Good, he's back.
0: <laughs>
1: so, in uh, you know, later on in the book, chapter five, actually, you um, you write about Grunwald's efforts to to de-emphasize Cap's World War II origins in order to focus on the changing world of the the mid 1980s to 1990s. And later on, you write that Grunwald doesn't let Cap dwell in the past. Uh, and again, this is another thing that, like, when I read I read that, I said, "Huh." Reflecting back on on you know the World run, I'm like, yeah, that's something I hadn't quite noticed, but it rings absolutely true. But let's drill down into that a bit. Can you explain what you mean by this and and maybe give some examples? It's it's especially
2: clear when you read like the entire run. You know, when you you read some of the stuff that precedes and some of the stuff that comes after, um, it's sort of an anomaly in how little it actually talks about World War II. That doesn't mean it doesn't. Um, It just pretends it doesn't exist, because that's not what's happening at all. Um, But in that very first issue of Grunewald, he has the dramatic flashback to the invaders and, and World War II, And then for the most part, it isn't really mentioned. And when it is mentioned it's it's like significant it's substantial there's there's a moment where he finds all of the dead supervillains at the bar with no name mm-hmm. and and he has a, a sort of a flashback where he thinks and i haven't seen anything like this since the war um and so there are these moments where it's almost like a ptsd sort of hits him of things that he's he's maybe been con- holding back and so there there isn't a lot of it and when the the skull is re- reintroduced which was inevitable that it would happen, right? Um, the skull is not wearing like the, the green smoking jacket kind of getup that we see in earlier incarnations. He's totally Gordon Gecko, Wall Street greed is good by this point. Um, and so even he is not really dwelling on World War II at this point. That was oh, another mean.
0: Gen X reference you just did, by the way, just for those who may not get Wall Street, but
2: what i'm here for um and um, and and but that's not to say that there are not other characters who aren't fixated on on world war ii because when we get the acts of vengeance storyline and magneto um confronts him uh magneto's thinking about world war ii friends in pretty dramatic way yeah um and and when we get the the uh Shea stadium skivvy's uh battle between kingpin and and red skull um Kingpin suddenly is a patriotic hero during this battle, which is sort of a weird role for him to fill. Um, and he calls him a Nazi scum, like repeatedly, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are characters who are thinking constantly about this, but Steve isn't necessarily. And either is the skull. The skull is kind of moving into a, a different philosophy and a different perspective, still a fascist, still a horrible, horrible character, but but kind of pivoting a little bit away from, from that, at least directly.
0: So I, I'm glad you brought up the Red Skull because um, you, you, you devote several pages contrasting Grunwald's characterization of the character uh, and uh, and how he's betrayed by previous writers in the series. Can you give us some examples and tell us, you know, why Grunwald? why would he take this approach to such a, a well-established character?
2: I, I think that's a great question. And, and I think that it kind of gets back to, to, to Grunwald's overall um, approach to villains, you know, and, and how they sort of represent different ideologies. And, and Skull is representing fascism. Um, but the fascism that's going to be relevant to a 1980s, 1990s audience is going to be a, a lot different. than than perhaps it would have been in in the 40s. right? And so I think he's kind of making that pivot toward this. Um, Just the overall idea of World War II in 1990, just for instance, it didn't have the same cachet um, as it would have in earlier generations. There was another war that media and literature was more fixated on um, in the 80s and 90s, and that was the Vietnam War. Um, There's a resurgence in interest in World War II with films in the late 90s and things like that but we're in an era in which they're just a saturation of of vietnam films and literature marvel even had the the Nam series and so mm-hmm. it was a there was a desire a need to sort of pivot away from that a little bit and i think making the skull less of representation of an era that might not resonate with the audience and into something that would you know i made the the gen x reference to to wall street earlier and and i think that that makes him kind of more terrifying to that 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 audience than he would have at other points instead of living in a a castle out in the middle of nowhere he's overlooking the the city that he wants to destroy in dc and and that makes him kind of a terrifying character in a brand new way without losing any of the the evil of that character—he's right. still terrifying, um, but he's terrifying in a new way. And it's kind of impressive that Mark was able to do that—to um, to reboot the character in this way without losing any of that. In fact, I think he's probably more scary in a way. You, you go back and look at some of the speeches and some of the earlier incarnations, and it's just these random spewings of words that the Red Skull is providing: revenge, um, vengeance, killing, and you know, lots of dot dot dots, lots of just random words. He's much more calculated by this point, point. and I think that makes him uh, a, a a a more of an '80s '90s nuanced villain, as much nuance as the Red Skull could ever have.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting that you bring that out because Grunwald did that with the Skull, and I would say probably in the same way that maybe Steve Englehart did that with Cap, right? Like where he 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 took this long-standing story of here's a cap removed from world war ii man out of time pining for bucky Barnes. you know oh woe is me into a different type of character and i think grunwald did the same thing with the red skull um and then you know you talk about this in your book um in chapter six that you know all these different adversaries right and and how they really more defined cap right so you know there's this you make the case that many of his adversaries are, are specifically intended to and quote define cap as the character Grunewald wants him to be. So in other words, you write Grunewald uses antagonists in the title, not merely to create tension and action though, that certainly occurs, but to give the reader and captain America himself a better understanding of what he personally represents and then you gave four examples. so we talked about the red skull but in in previously we talked about flag smasher but you also then go into viper you go into Batrock to make your case so maybe can you summarize this argument for us absolutely i this is one of
2: the more exciting things i got into i, I love talking about these villains um, and it was really interesting as i was delving into the issues because this is something that mark is 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 doing in year one um, the first 12 issues of this, he's introducing a bevy of villains, reintroducing villains that are ideologically driven, right, that they're, they're almost exclusively built around one concept um, that stands in contrast to something that Cap's doing. And there was pushback from readers. It's like, hey, I thought this was Captain America. And, you know, he's barely in some of these issues, as we already talked about with the nomad-centric issue that he started with. And it's true, but it's a long game. Um, Mark knew that he wanted to be on this title for a while, and he was. And so it was a, a long-term goal to build out these ideologies and how they contrast. And as we've already talked about, the, the skull stands as a symbol of fascism and sort of 80s decadence and 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 never-ending evil. Um, and Flagmaster stands here as this, this, this idea of anti-nationalism, which is a concept that the reader could potentially see as being valuable um but he is so violent so murderous that that we're not going to sympathize with him but but there's merit perhaps in some of his his ideas the viper is is a nihilist, right? The Viper just wants to destroy. Just whatever can be destroyed needs to be destroyed. And so it's it's fascinating when you get that pairing of Viper and Skull um, as the run goes on. And and it, two characters that you would think, oh, they, these are characters that will hit it off in, in ways that I don't even want to think about. Um, <laughs> and yet Mark gets us to the point where like, no, they're not compatible in terms of their ideologies because, and, and the Skull actually lays this out, she's a nihilist. And her plans are are so that if any of them ever worked, the world's over. You know, I mean, everything's done um, if any of her plans work, and that's why she's always stopped because there wouldn't be much Captain America stories to tell if the Viper ever succeeds. And so there's that moment where the skull says, like, you know i i he He kind of admits that he's impressed with her, but I can't support a nihilist because then what am I going to rule over um if if her plans ever succeed and so it's that kind of contrast between the two um and and Batroc's interesting because he stands apart from these characters because we've got um viper and and skull are just so ridiculously over the top evil and and then you go batrock who who doesn't feel as, as stereotypically evil as this, um, even at the point of like, maybe Flag smasher has an ideology, but his his use of violence and and, and how willing he is to murder kind of make him stand apart from Batrock too. So Batrock represents what I talk about in the book as um, the masculine honor code. So this idea that he has this honor code that he abides by that is problematic in its own ways, but sort of, Represent something outside of, of Steve himself too, and so for Batroc, like there's during the 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 Bloodstone Hunt series, um, they find he and his his compatriots they they find um, Diamondback and and they just his compatriots just want to kill her and and he's like no no she's she's a lady we have to be respectful to this lady it's condescending it's it's a it's a little icky but you know there's like this sort of sense of morality almost that's there some sort of moral code um when he sees later in that storyline that cap is about to be eaten by sharks he doesn't feel like this is a proper way for for a hero of as much dignity and value as captain Mare to go so he secretly saves cap um, so even though his allies can't see it, but then they confront him later and, and accuse him of being, I think the term is sweet on the captain, I believe is what they say, something like that, to which he blows up um, defending his his um, heterosexuality and everything else. It just it kind of explodes in that moment. Um, so getting into the sense that this masculine honor code also has um, homophobia sort of attached to it w- within this. And, and so you would see Cap as being this sort of, symbol of nobility in this way too but then we're also seeing the darker side of that um through through him so yes batroc sees himself as this kind of gentleman but at the same time he's really not um even if he's a little more noble and uh less murderous perhaps than some of cap's other
0: adversaries yeah then we we come full circle at the end of of grunwald's run uh you know when cap is laying there you know, mm-hmm. thinking he's dying. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, he's hoping to, one of the last things that he hopes to do is to, is to convince Batrock to, to go on the, on the right path. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Batrock to his, his uh, nobility, if you will, you know, just try to, to acquiesce, you know, uh, Captain as as he's on his deathbed, so to speak.
2: I, I don't know if many other writers who would have ended um, a major storyline in a run with, Cap and Batroc having tea hmm. also right I mean it's kind that of right yeah it, it also comes after he went and talked to Crossbones um to see if there's some way of finding redemptions. that's not going to happen right. <laughs> that's not a character that's going to be redeemed um and so this conversation with Batroc happens and and it is it's a it's a kind of wonderful quiet moment um and Mark is so good at those um, some of my favorite moments in these comics are these kind of quiet conversations as opposed to the accent sequences, which he does splendidly as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, sort of building on on this theme, uh, one of the things oh, we've talked about it back in the back in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, you know, there was this sort of anti-hero um, craze. You know, obviously in pop culture, we had the Stallone movies, we had the Schwarzenegger movies. Um, and so. I was fascinated by your suggestion, because in its surface level, it appears to be something different. I, I, will just, I will just preface it with that. But I was fascinated by your suggestion that Grunwald's use of both the scourge of the underworld and the Americop had less to do with capitalizing on that anti-hero craze of the, that was so prevalent at the time and more to do with solidifying Cap's character in contrast to those um, who had far more ambiguous moral codes. So can you talk a little bit about that? I can. Right? I mean, I do think, I think a lot of people would say, oh, wow, they just threw these in there because that's what everybody wanted. But there's something more there, right? I think there is. I, I think if these were characters in other books or in their own books,
2: um, they'd be viewed very differently. Um, both Scourge of the Underworld and Americop are going after reprehensible characters, right? I mean, they're going after criminals. There's there's a code, especially that Scourge seems to have. And we don't want to get deep into the mythology of what the Scourge of the Underworld actually is. So we'll just kind of let it sit on what it is in those early issues of, you know, somebody who sort of decided to, to take out this path of vengeance, as opposed to some of the convoluted stuff that follows. But, it, you know, that character um, has an honor code too. That character is unwilling to kill Cap because Cap's not a criminal. Um, Cap is, I believe the quote is, one of the best crime busters there is or something like that. Um, unwilling to take Cap out at those moments. Um, but in contrast to Cap, it looks, it looks like a villain. Um, In contrast to Cap, Americop certainly looks like a villain. And so they're reinforcing this decency and this sense of justice that Cap possesses Mm -hmm. by by showing this very dark and violent and over-the-top version of it. Americop's fascinating because when we see him apprehending criminals, if apprehending is the right word here, um, they're awful. You know, there's there's the implication of sex trafficking in one, and then there's a hate crime going on in another. Um, And yet, the amount of violence that's taking place in in reaction to those things is sort of appalling for the reader. Now, as we kind of got at before, would that feel as appalling in the pages of Punisher or in the pages of Mm -hmm. of another type of comic? Maybe not. Um, But that's not happening in another comic. It's happening in Cap. And it kind of gets back to what we talked about a while ago with Wolverine guest starring in the Man and Wolf series, that wolverine is kind of a tough fit in some ways in the Cap universe because his sense of justice is very different um than Cap's. and so Brunwald solves that problem by getting to have wolverine on the cover but having him like mind controlled so we don't have to really worry about what his actual decisions would be in the storyline and and with with characters like americop and scourge they are they are villains because of the world they're inhabiting um, because this is Cap's world. Um, mm-hmm. And in Cap's world, you don't do the things that they do.
0: Yeah, until until we get to annual number eight. Yes. Right, where we have Cap and Wolverine uh, mm-hmm. and, and we get to dive a little bit, you know, deeper into that. Um, so that that was a, a fun story. And I think the, yes. that that annual eight ends with Cap telling Wolverine, you'll never make it in the Avengers or something to that effect. <laughs> and then of course, you know, 20 years later, Brian Michael Bendis gets Wolverine into the Avengers. Jason uh, streets of poison fighting
1: chance. You cover them both in, in chapters nine and 10. And you, you suggest that it's a consistent trope of Grunwald's that. He wants to make clear, and, and and to do this, I want to paraphrase that 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 famous quote from uh, from Iron Man, right? Tony Stark in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where he tells he tells Cap, Steve Rogers, that everything special about him came out of a bottle. And I think Brunwald, as you suggest, uh, makes the case again and again that that that's not what's special about Steve, right? That it's it's Steve's work ethic that that makes him special, that makes him. Captain America. It's not the super soldier serum. It's it's not anything else. It's it's Steve himself. So what do, what do you mean by that? In that Streets
2: of Poison series, uh, when Cap gets the, um, the the designer drug merging with the super soldier serum, that's the only time we really see a different version of Steve um, over the course of this. I, ta- I spoke earlier about the Capitol series and about the teen Cap, where he's physically changed but he remains Steve Rogers and here it's different. Um, and, and so to rectify that, he's willing to lose the super soldier serum at that point in the storyline um, to, to make sure that he is still Steve Rogers and, and is willing to kind of move past the super soldier serum and see if he can still be the person that he, he knows he is. Um, in the Finding Chance storyline, when his body is physically failing him um, at those moments, he, he has to figure out how to work within that. And, and so Cap is learning pretty dramatically that he can't um, just do everything that he's done before. It's that person within has to be the one to carry the day. Um, and those storylines, I think, do a fascinating job of, of covering that. Um, it's, it's so interesting, you know, we kind of talked about the cynicism perhaps of the, the direction the comic industry was taking by this point in the late 90s. And how Mark maybe didn't feel that, that people were looking at Cap in the way that they did before. Maybe there was a lack of value for Cap. Maybe he was thinking about that himself. I, I don't want to delve too deep into what he was thinking. I, I didn't have the good fortune to ever get to know him. But it, it feels like in that storyline, we've got a Cap who's like physically um, removed from being able to do what he wants to do. Um, yet he still tries. Um, and he has to find ways of surviving and thriving and trying to defeat villains even though he physically is incapable of doing what he does and that feels so steep um to find ways to to still fight when i cannot move Uh, so how can i beat these guys if i'm actually physically unable to move for the next 10 minutes um what is it that i can do to try to defeat them Mm -hmm. um so to me that really defines who he is there's this persistence this decency this this unwillingness to ever stop um that defines steve rogers and captain america and i think those storylines get that across yeah especially oh go
1: ahead oh no and you right i mean uh, very very explicitly that you write steve rogers is great and that's why captain america is great
0: yeah
1: love that i think that summarizes it right i mean it does at
0: home that that, that totally drives it home wraps it up very well so so jason you you've spent a lot of time in this book exploring mark grunewald's run um it's clear you you have a lot of love and admiration for for grew as a as a person and and as a creator um yeah, but you know hey is there is there one story you could point to that uh grew wrote that is maybe perhaps the most meaningful to you and and why?
2: gosh um I don't know if I can Rick i I'm, I might mention a couple because as a complete cop-out. but I'll, I'll at least come up with two that are next to each other <laughs> that's um, fair. Thank you. Um, that probably a lot of people aren't going to pick, but I, I, I delve so deeply into. It. I'm going to take some issue 40401. That's the, the Operation Galactic Storm storyline, which which I didn't really you know I have I didn't I couldn't find a lot of love for the storyline, and, and so I'll provide all of it here. But but issue 40401, 400 there are like two places. In which I feel like they, you almost get this best understanding of how Gru wrote this character. Because in 400, it's basically a cap story, solo story, um, even though it's in the midst of this, this huge crossover. In which he's kind of captured by the, the Kree and, and is forced to fight the, his greatest villains from the Grunewald mm-hmm. era all at once. And he's not sure if they're real or not. Um, and that's the whole conceit of this, this story. So he's fighting, um, I believe it's Skull and um, Batrock. Uh, Crossbones is there, Viper's there. Uh, I think Cobra is there. So he's fighting all of them at once. Yet the whole time, as he's fighting, and they're exciting sequences, well drawn and, and well rendered, um, he's thinking, how do I figure out if this is real? And so it's this fascinating approach. To to battle. It's not just, I'm not just going to try to destroy everybody here. It's like reasoning and trying to figure out. And it turns out that all of these characters are manifestations that are created by Steve's psyche and his memories and his understanding. And so these these characters that are fighting him are completely created by him, which means that we get this other insight, which is what an incredible observer Steve Rogers is and how much he pays attention. So as these villains are about to kill him, um, Bashrock. Um, doesn't feel like this is sporting at all. And so he saved Steve at the last minute. And it's not really Batroc. It's the way that he's perceived things. Mm-hmm. And then Steve is trying to figure out if, well, I gotta know if you're real or not. And and so can you take your mask off? And, and Batroc's like, well, you don't know what I look like. So what will that tell? And Steve's like, just do it. And then I'll see if my point is right. And he takes his mask off and there's no face. You know, it's only the go- the, the mustache and, the, and the, the bottom because Steve has worked his way through an understanding of this fight sequence. And it's so much more interesting than, than just punches and kicks eh, because it's this cerebral approach mm-hmm. that, that Greenwald so instilled in the character. And then in 401, it's the aftermath. And it's Cap dealing with depression. Um, and he's he's feeling that the, the Avengers are not responding to him in the way that they did. He's feeling that he's a bit of a failure. Um, it's really serious, heady stuff. And it's in one of those issues that I was kind of talking about. They're, they're kind of light on action, but heavy on character stuff. And and one of the main moments of this issue is Steve and Tony in a bar talking their, their feelings through to two people who don't drink and, and can't at that point. Um, trying to work things out and it's quiet and it's sensitive and it's it's just perfect character development um and so i love those two issues kind of back to back because they represent s- of, of so much of the spectrum of what mark did well
0: well put and mm-hmm. i i would actually classify Amen. that as one story uh is uh, operation galactic storm so um you're allowed to pick another if you'd like but but uh, but no but no you you've done a great job of pointing those two out i i would say you know the the adolescent rick when reading that maybe had one take on it and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation right where you talked about the adolescent jason and then when you became this more scholarly version of yourself right that when you went back and you took a look at these things you had a new eye and a new appreciation uh for what mark grunwald did and and perhaps maybe the literature that has become
2: Absolutely, it's it was it was a delight to go back through them, and I could see what appealed to me so much as adolescent Jason, um, and yet see these these levels that I never could have gotten to, which maybe my grandfather did when he when he was reading them, um, yeah. and that makes me feel even more connected. Yeah, yes. yeah,
0: and and that's the beauty of your book. You you explore this, <laughs> so um, you know we we encourage all of our listeners to check out the book. Mark Grunwald and the star spangled symbolism of Captain America, 1985 to 1995. Um, and, and you can, you can go on to uh, Jason's website, which is Jason olsencom Olson.com. And that's J-A-S-O-N-O-L-S-E-N. And you can go on there, or you can just do a little Google search and find all the different uh, sellers out there because um, this comes, this, this particular uh podcast will be coming out in early may which I, I think is celebrating the one year anniversary of this book right
2: it is it it came out at an odd time <laughs> um so so not a lot of um, release events and things that i've had for it so so i'm kind of looking at the release it, it it's now it's it's as people are listening to this book it's awesome, this, awesome. Is, this is kind of my release party i'm
1: glad you it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: and, and <laughs> you're also a uh, a member of the uh, captain america yeah comic book fans facebook group so uh we we yeah. you know we can always uh, catch up with you there and chat with Absolutely. you so
1: yeah let me i gotta tell readers i uh i read it cover to cover uh, jason and uh and i i highly encourage it i think we just scratched the surface on uh on what you plumb in this book and, and it's worth picking up and it's worth reading carefully because there's a lot of insight in here that means the world to me uh, to hear about thank you so
0: much yeah, perfect summertime reading coming up, mm-hmm. right? Mother's Day gift. Yeah, yeah, sitting sitting by the pool, <laughs> sitting by the beach. Yeah, well, it's been a real pleasure wrapping cap with you, Jason. We hope we we hope you have a great success with the book.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.
0: Well, that was a fun conversation with uh, Jason Olson. Uh, I I got to tell you, um, you know, as a big Mark Grunewald fan myself, it was uh, a lot of fun diving in deeper into some of the some of the topics with him
1: yeah i you know what i really enjoyed and and i'm sure this came through to the listeners was that there were so many things so many insights jason had in his book uh that he you know he explained in in a lot of detail but there were things that like i hadn't quite put my finger on i mean maybe sort of subconsciously i picked these things up along the way but when he wrote about him i was like oh my gosh you know yeah Um, I can't believe I hadn't put two and two together on that myself. So it was um, it was great to sort of reconnect with the material and uh, to have him guide us through his analysis of of some of those things. And uh, I I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of reconnecting with the material, uh, next episode, 83, we do the captain part one. So we uh, we we've been doing. The second week of every month, uh, the last three months, we've been doing The Road to the Captain, parts one, two, and three. And uh, now we finally get to the captain. Steve Rogers makes a return to his own series. And uh, he now we get to see uh, the captain. So uh, this is some consider Mark Grumwald's very best captain america story and and we're covering these 24 issues uh over a course of eight parts so come back next episode for uh, 83 for the captain part one where we'll we cover captain america 336 to 3, thirty eight, which uh takes place in 1987
1: to 1988 oh yeah well i'm looking forward to that and uh and it's going to have uh Maybe I'll I'll read you know some uh, I'll try to be prepared number one, Nedlock. But um, uh, you know maybe I'll I'll uh, I'll read some insights there that uh, maybe I hadn't picked up before thanks to, to Jason's uh, conversation with us tonight.
0: Yep. All right, Bob. Well, as always, it's been fun wrapping cap with you. Yep. Let's do this again. We got to do it again soon. All right. He's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick Verbonis. And you've been listening to another episode of the Captain America comic book fans podcast.